Welcome to Common Ground, a talk show encouraging debate and a deeper understanding of hot-button topics in Berlin and beyond. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. The Greek physician and philosopher Hippocrates once said, drastic times call for drastic measures. The Russian war in Ukraine definitely qualifies. It prompted Germany to end its military-averse approach to foreign policy, honed by its role in the Second World War and strengthened by the end of the Cold War three decades ago. Recently, Chancellor Olaf Scholz told the Bundestag that his country had no choice but to dramatically change tack. We must therefore ask ourselves, what capabilities does Putin's Russia have and what capabilities do we need to counter this threat, today and in the future? One thing is clear. We must invest significantly more in the security of our country in order to protect our freedom and our democracy in this way. But is this hawkish Germany here to stay? And can Germans and their allies get past the discomfort generated by German military might? With me in our Berlin studio to talk about this sea change and its ramifications is Heiner Braus, who is Senior Associate Fellow at the German Council on Foreign Relations in its Security and Defense Program. He's a retired general in the Bundeswehr and a former Assistant Secretary General for NATO for Defense Policy and Force Planning. Welcome. Thank you very much. Also joining us is Rachel Tausenfreund, Editorial Director for the German Marshall Fund, who recently penned an opinion piece for GMF on the Zeitenwende. She is also co-host of our joint monthly current affairs show, Transatlantic Takeaway. Thanks for being here, Rachel. Always a pleasure. Rachel, let's remind listeners about some of the key items in Scholz's speech regarding defense. Sure. So I think the two biggest are a 100 billion euro special fund. So a kind of immediate fund of a 100 billion euro investment in defense spending. And um, this has to be specially anchored to get around Germany's debt break. So it's a big move. And the other one that a lot of allies were really looking to is the promise to spend 2%. And in fact, he said more than 2% in the years to come for defense. And this had been a sore issue because um, NATO members have committed actually to spend 2% of their GDP on defense. And Germany had, since 1990, always fallen short of that mark and in fact been around the one3 so significantly short of 2%. And now they're talking about 2%. So this is a huge climate defense spending. Also things like armed drones um, were talked about. A lot of issues that had been very controversial just two weeks earlier, were all laid out in this speech. Yes, we will supply military aid. That had that alone had been controversial until the day before. We'll supply military aid in a conflict zone. Germany doesn't do that. 100 billion euros, 2%, armed drones. Those are the headlines, and they're big headlines. So forgive me for asking, but can we say that Vladimir Putin was able to get Germany to do what the U.S. and NATO couldn't? You could really say that, yes. I don't know what that says about uh, the German government, that it took Putin rather than sort of a bit of persuasion and the strong arming of Trump. Uh, that also didn't work. And Putin managed what Trump and all the sort of more friendly U.S. presidents in the past uh, couldn't manage. I know you were trying to stifle a laugh. I mean, do you agree with that sentiment that Vladimir Putin pushed Germany to where it needed to be on defense? To a great extent, I do. Yes, it required this uh, horrible attack by Putin against Ukraine to wake up the German elite and to wake up the German political leadership that defense matters. And without any defense, uh, liberty will not be maintained in Europe. And uh, indirectly, he reminded us of our commitment made towards NATO that we should, A, 
fully implement the, our NATO capability targets, which Germany since years has agreed to. And to this end, uh, we need to spend more than 2% of the GDP per year. Which is the plan now. Which is now the plan, but I am sure it will be implemented since the Chancellor himself committed to it, something Angela Merkel never did. So that is a big difference. I interviewed Colonel André Wüstner, the head of the German Armed Forces Association, and asked him for his reaction to Olaf Scholz's historic speech. I was surprised by the amount, but above all, by the new direction of German security policy. It's definitely the biggest course change we've seen since the 50s when it comes to the rearmament of Germany. And I can only hope that this new insight will continue. Heino, was that your reaction too? I mean, the colonel says beefing up of Germany's defense capabilities has been in the works for years. Indeed, um, it's a sea change also in our security and defense policy and also in planning how to equip the German armed forces and to, in a way, reconstitute it and reconstitute their, their capabilities, uh, which have been degraded in the past 10 to 20 years and need to be beefed up significantly in order to stand the challenge that Putin has established. You were involved in NATO planning during the time Putin seized Crimea and entered the Donbass. Do you think this change in German policy should have happened sooner? And could it have prevented this full-on invasion from happening? Yes, it should. But to a significant degree, it did already in 2014. I was at NATO. Germany played at NATO a different role than at home in Berlin. So there they were fully supportive of NATO's defense planning and NATO's reorientation to strengthen collective defense and deterrence rather than focusing on crisis management as they did for 20 years before. And the German representatives um, at NATO were, uh, showed initiative and were helping adapting NATO at that time. And one significant um, example is that the Germans agreed to lead a battle group, a multinational battle group, deployed at Lithuania, together with the US in Poland, Canada in Latvia, and uh, the UK, United Kingdom in Estonia. That was already a significant step forward and appreciated by many allies, all the more since we are the center, uh, located in the center of Europe and are the most, the richest country allies expected us to spend much more to underpin and substantiate the adaptation of NATO's posture. So would it have stopped Putin, though? I mean, it sounds like there were already significant steps going on, yet he took Crimea, and he, even though he claimed he wasn't in, in the Donbass, I was there, and I saw Russians there. So I don't think there was much doubt that there were, in fact, forces there as well. In this regard, he, he, Scholz's statement would not have stopped Putin. He has been keen to um, attack Ukraine, to get it neutral, to get it under control. This is his first and most important strategic goal. And uh, he had to be sure that NATO would not intervene. And since President Biden and also all the other leaders of the NATO allies stated publicly that they would not engage militarily in Ukraine, he could act. So in the long run, perhaps, as Putin is also um, aiming at reversing the development of NATO and European security that has happened from 90, early 90s, last century onwards. And he would like to reverse it and get 
control of half of Europe, the sea change in Germany and the significant strengthening of the German armed forces in the years ahead will certainly have an influence on this risk calculus. You wanted to add something, Rachel? I mean, with the very significant caveat that I am not a military expert, it is a question that Western capitals really should be grappling with, um, whether the deterrence was clear enough and was strong enough ahead of February 24th. You know, Germany was against supplying uh, military aid and not a lot of very significant military aid, at least especially not publicly, was being delivered. And, you know, one wonders if NATO had said, look, we are definitely not intervening, but here are some fighter jets we're delivering already. Here are some very significant anti-air capabilities that we are delivering. They're just sitting in Ukraine. We are not going to use them, but they're here. And also here is the list of very significant sanctions because they were trying to be a bit coy and um, saying, you know, it's better if Putin doesn't exactly know what the sanctions are. And I think it's reasonable to assume, given what happened after 2014, where there were sanctions. But let's be honest, it was a relatively weak and meek response to Russian aggression in 2014. If I were Putin, it would be a reasonable assumption. The West doesn't care that much. The West is not going to pay a heavy price. Therefore, and we know from his sort of this leaked uh, plan. I mean, he thought he was going to go right to Kiev and take it over and topple the government. And he thought that because he thought the Ukraine army was weak. He thought that in part because we did not give them very significant military capability leading up to it. So I think we shouldn't let ourselves off the hook too easily on that one. It's possible. I mean, who knows? No one can read Putin's mind, not even the people around him, but it's possible our deterrence was too weak and that endangered Ukraine. So, Rachel, what is the impact then of Germany's stated intentions uh, having on Putin or the Ukrainian leadership for that matter? I mean, as well as this green light to provide some weapons which are now being sent to Ukraine. I think at this point, it's probably not having a huge impact on Putin. He made the decision. He's there. He's got to win now somehow. Um, I mean, it's painful. Nord Stream 2 is painful. The sanctions are painful. So uh, that's at least something. Um, It's not going to change his calculus anymore. I believe that it's been heartening. The Western support for Ukraine has been very heartening to uh, President Zelensky, to the people. Um, I mean, I certainly hope so. It's making them feel supported. It's making them feel like the fight might be worth it. The weapons are certainly helping. The aid is helping. So those things are all um, all important. I think the bigger difference for Germany's change of thinking about this the Zeitenwende, as they call it, has more to do with the future, the future of European defense and security capabilities, postures, structures. That's going to be a different picture than it was before. There are a lot of new opportunities um, there that maybe one couldn't have thought of three years ago. Heino, do you think that Putin will stay no matter what? I mean, that he can't pull out of Ukraine? Rachel already mentioned that. I think the Putin and his leadership have significantly underestimated the Ukraine capabilities and the Ukraine willingness to fight and to defend their country. They have turned out to be a true nation that defends their country against an aggression from the outside. And uh, to my mind also, the military leadership has made significant mistakes and miscalculations. My feeling is they got there with a view to achieve victory within only a few days and the Ukrainians would give up. That has turned to be completely uh, wrong. Now they are stuck in cities and urban fighting for mechanized forces is deadly complicated and unsuccessful. 
And I think this was another strategic mistake of the military leadership of the Russian Federation. Instead of looking how to operate in the country and gain um, space and defeat the forces, they are now stuck in the big cities, which is terrible for the population. But military, there is no big achievement so far. Uh, we'll see how this will play out. I have to say, unfortunately, due to uh, the Russian repression of their own country, I have not much hope that Putin will be removed. It can only be removed by the people around him or the Russian population. Let's go back domestically for a moment, and I'll ask the last question before we go to break to you, Rachel. Are all the mainstream German political parties on board with this new defense approach that Germany is taking? And could the unity end if the approach is long-term, which undoubtedly it has to be? So to answer the first part of the question, yes. Um, We have right now a three-party government, which is new for Germany, the Social Democrats, the Greens, and the Liberals, the FDP. And we saw this actually after Scholz's announcement that it was followed by shorter speeches from representatives of all the other parties and the main opposition party, which is the Christian Democrats. Traditionally in Germany, the Christian Democrats were the more in favor of boosting spending and capabilities of the Bundeswehr. And it was the Social Democrats and the Greens and the Liberals for different reasons who were opposed to higher military spending. The Liberals because they're opposed to government spending in general and taxes. The Social Democrats and the Greens because they have a long history of as being peace parties. In fact, in the party platform of the Social Democrats, they were still referring to themselves as a peace party. Traditionally, they've also had really close relations with uh, with Russia and with uh, Putin even, even including a former chancellor who's now on the payroll of Gazprom, a major Russian company. So it's problematically close ties. So we now see a very significant shift that those parties are leading the government with this new thinking of defense capability and spending, who would have been previously most against it. So yes, it has mainstream support in a way that it never did before. How long can it last? So if there's peace, which we can certainly all hope in the next weeks or months, um, and there's no longer a kind of active war footing, and Russia maybe again looks like a power that's not going to invade anyone, I mean, how likely that is, I don't know then certainly the kind of impetus, like the immediate sense of living in a dangerous world that has made this change possible will fall away and it will be a bit easy, let's say, for Germans to return to their mindset before. But I actually do think it's not about the military spending primarily. It really is about a realization in Germany that I think has been a realization of a lot of the public who just thought, you know, weapons and military, that's a thing of the past. That's for, you know, old men 60 years ago. This is not a thing that's relevant to us now. And to the extent that there's danger in the world, it's from us when we have too much military, which is the lesson of German history. And so, you know, in my piece, I argued this was for Germany, the awakening of the logic of deterrence and that having military capability can be defensive and can be uh, necessary to protect uh, innocent people and not um, aggression. So I th- think there's a chance that some level of this sea change remains. We're going to take a short break, and when we return, we'll talk more about the German armed forces and whether or not they can actually get what they need. Stay tuned. Hello. This is Abby, presenter and co-creator of Berlin Briefing. 
Do you find yourself having trouble understanding the news of the Hauptstadt, usually presented in German? If so, Berlin Briefing can help. We curate local top stories and present them in an 8-10-minute podcast in English every Monday through Friday. You can find us at berlinbriefing.de or wherever you get your podcasts. The Germany Experience Podcast, where foreigners share their experiences of living in Germany. Supermarkets here drive me insane. But I just said, what are you staring at? No, stop it. Stop it. She's crying. There was a shepherd leading a flock of sheep (laughs) down the street. And they give us some advice. Find ways to stay connected to home. Learn how to drive through the roadworks. If you really want to connect with people, learning the language is the key to that. The Germany Experience Podcast. Life in Germany through the eyes of outsiders. Welcome back to Common Ground and our conversation about Germany's watershed on defense. I'm Soraya Sarhadi Nelson, and joining me are Heine Braus, Senior Associate Fellow with the German Council on Foreign Relations, and GMF Editorial Director Rachel Tausenfreund. We are talking about Germany's historic shift in its foreign policy and defense. Chancellor Scholz says part of that will be achieved with a one-time, quick infusion of 100 billion euros into Germany's armed forces. Heine, given your background as a general in the Bundeswehr and as well as with NATO, do you think that 100 billion euros is enough? It's a significant figure, but based on my experience, it's not too much. I will tell you why. It extended for the next 10 years, to my understanding. Not a one, one-off for this year, but 10 years. Um, it will be combined with a 2% figure, to my understanding. need to be defined by the government and uh, be specified and explained. What is really important is that essentially, essential to Germany to fulfill the capability targets set by NATO as they have been set to every other ally to which we have fully agreed several times in the past. And this means that the German armed forces will become fully usable, combat ready, fully manned, fully equipped, and ready and capable of participating in high-end, large-scale maneuver operations. Currently we are not. We have pledged that we will be able to establish such a full-fledged combat ready high-end brigade of land forces by 2023. We will miss this target. We'll be a bit later. It's 80%, I think, are talking 80%. about. Uh, so I mean, 80% the, ready, sorry. The immediate yeah. impact of the 100 billion is not there yet. We have pledged, committed ourselves to establishing such a fully full-fledged division, army division, by 2027. That still is a challenge. And I would like to stress it's not so much the big projects, these visible projects, F-35, heavy transport helicopter, digitization, they are all important. But what really matters currently for the army commander and for helping our allies in the east and for supporting NATO's adaptation in response to Putin now, to do all of that, this requires full commitment to achieving combat readiness of the German army Air Force and Navy. That is what really counts. This is what Colonel Rusna of the Armed Forces Association said when I asked him about what the money might go for. 
The 100 billion euros are a good starting point for retrofitting and filling the void. The question is, how will the other Europeans arrange their piece of the puzzle? Because whether in the European security architecture or in the alliance, every nation's piece of the puzzle has to fit. We promised NATO three divisions that are fully equipped, ready for action by 2030. There are also heavy transport helicopters and nuclear-ready aircraft, the key word being F-35s. These are things that must be tackled as priorities. And if Germany's role also has a maritime focus in the future, for example, then of course it's about improving our navy and more. But that is a question of international political coordination in the alliance. For the core orders, the NATO target, the 100 billion are enough. If you want to go beyond that, you will need more. Heiner, are you able to elaborate on some of the changes that are needed in the German military that cannot be quickly addressed? And what sort of time range are we talking about? I mean, I understand specifics are not necessarily something that we know about in the public, but I'm just wondering as a military expert or somebody with a military background, what sort of things are needed? Let me turn your question, reverse your question. Please um, do. What is it, what we can achieve immediately and, and acquire immediately, and there's not much? Perhaps personal equipment for the soldiers. Perhaps, if available, ammunition. Our stocks are not empty, but need to be replenished significantly. Apart from that, I fear all the other um, big projects will take a couple of years at least. Perhaps if the government uh, decides quickly, we can, in agreement with the United States, acquire... F-35 to replace the old tornadoes, which are essential for um, nuclear sharing. Perhaps we can acquire a number of armored vehicles for the mechanized infantry, the famous Puma. And uh, in coordination with allies and also the armament industry. But all the other projects, and also, as I already alluded to, the reconstitution of the combat readiness of the German army, for example, the establishment of full-fledged brigades and divisions it takes years. And this will not change because of need to be planned, need to be implemented, the structure need to be amended, and it need to be um, supported by the industry with the necessary equipment. And all this takes time. If you acquire a new f- weapon system, you can take 10 years from planning until it's, it's arriving in the German armed forces. So decades rather than years is Not what decades, we're talking about. Not decades, but years. Yes, perhaps in my opinion, the timelines so far set for achieving the capability targets by NATO need to be brought forward. So in my view, 2030, 2031 is too late in view of the sea change also in the security environment and the need for NATO to quickly further strengthen its deterrence and defense posture along the whole eastern flank with Russia. Rachel, a larger Bundeswehr, well beyond its current 180,000 number, is what many military experts say will be needed to properly defend Germany and Europe, for that matter. I mean, during the Cold War, we were talking about a half million troops. Given long-standing recruitment struggles, reinstating conscription seems to be the only way to get at that number. Do you see conscription returning to Germany, though? I mean, is there a political or public will for that? There's now public will for things that seemed impossible two weeks ago. Therefore, conscription might be one of them. 
it's possible, I think, because it was relatively recently that they switched away from conscription. So I do see a path where there could be political conversations around this and conscription could come back. I think there's also a path to, you know, if Germany now has a different way of thinking about military capacity and about its military, if it's willing to now invest more, you know, looking at these images of the soldiers, female soldiers um, fighting in Ukraine, it might also boost um, Germany's ability to recruit soldiers you know, as well. So I think that's a possibility that they'll find that recruitment starts to work better as the position of the Bundeswehr in the public mind changes. Um, but I think given the huge sea change that we're talking about, conscription probably is back on the table. I know you were shaking your head, though. <laughs> Why do you think not? I have mixed feelings. Of course, I was a company commander when I was a young captain. With, with many conscripts in my battery. I was an artillery gunner. And I gained 50% of my warrant officers and NCO from the pool, in inverted commas, of conscripts. We were able to recruit many of them, rather than only uh, them only staying for 16 or 15 months at that time. Now, in that regard, I'm fully supportive to what Rachel said. And I would love to see its return. However, it's a political challenge, and it's a huge structural organizational challenge for the armed forces. And in this regard, I would suggest first thing first. First, make the Bundeswehr fully combat ready and fully usable. What we need are fully usable large formations, army formations, that can be used for the whole spectrum of missions, from low-end peacekeeping, but effective peacekeeping, to high-end combat operations, collective defense, alongside allies in a theater of operation along the eastern border or eastern flank of NATO. If you plan to um, use, in inverted commas, or, or employ also conscripts in such a mission, you cannot go with six months of conscripts. You need to extend it to 15, if not 18 months. That need to be kept in mind. And that's not politically tenable. That is, in my view, currently would be overestimating the political will of our, of our political leadership and parliament in particular. But I agree, never say no. It could turn out it is possible, but I would suggest we focus our political managing and organizational and financial effort on what is needed now and in the short term. Well, let me broaden it to NATO for a minute, um, because obviously both NATO and the United States have had some concerns about a European army. So what happens now with this idea of a European army? Is that going to gain more support? I mean, you talk about there needing to be more cooperation and more sort of a versatility. And uh, it's, it's interesting to me because Jens Stoltenberg, you know, the NATO chief, insisted just a few months ago that European defense efforts shouldn't duplicate existing structures, in other words, NATO. Does that change, too, since we're in the never-say-no era? And uh, I don't know which one of you wants to take that question. I can start, and then Heiner can correct me, yeah. um, or disagree with me, or maybe <laughs> agree with me. We'll see. Um, I think every indication is that whatever happens with increased European collaborative, cooperative efforts, and I hope they will be significant, they're going to be in cooperation with NATO. I don't see that a way that Germany is on board and Poland is on board if it's not very clearly cooperative with NATO. 
Therefore, you know, maybe it's an EU army inside NATO if you want to think about it that way or that, you know, is fully interchangeable with NATO forces. Um, I think there's going to be concentrated EU efforts. I hope they're going to be significant, but I think they're going to be thought within the structures of NATO. That's the only way that uh, this political momentum moves forward. Heine? Don't be surprised, Rachel. I fully agree to you, and I would even go a step further. I fully agree to what Secretary General Stoltenberg has stated, and he has stated the past time and again, also vis-a-vis European interlocutors. Who understand that, by the way? I myself have have been struggling with the term and the concept European army. How should it look like? Should we have a European military command, a European supreme commander next to Sakur in NATO? Should it be a French, a German, an Italian? How should that be organized? And um, will it be a standing army or is it just a loose cooperation of the, of the, the European armed forces? So uh, my plea would let's get away with that. I agree the Europeans need to do much more altogether because, yes, the US have recommitted and fully are fully supportive to European defense, and we are glad that this will continue. But in the mid and the long term, the strategic challenge for them is China. And my guess is that the U.S. will, in the mid and the long term, shift their strategic focus to the Indo-Pacific. But they cannot do both, secure Europe and contain China. So they need to be relieved and need to be supported. And this needs to be done by the Europeans. So we Europeans, all together, with the big countries leading, Germany, France, UK, Poland, Italy. We need to do much more for deterrence and defense on the one hand and crisis management in the southern region. But alongside, together with the US, and alongside with their forces, and in full transparency and coordination with them. And this needs to be done in the first place within NATO. We do not need duplication, unnecessary duplication of structures and forces. We all have only one point of forces and not several for the European Union or NATO or whatever. So that needs to be maintained and organized. And I would nevertheless agree if the Europeans within NATO, 21 of them are double-headed, EU members and NATO members, plus NATO partners, Sweden, Finland, um, coordinate themselves in such a way that they together create a fully usable set of forces and capabilities that could be drawn upon also by the European Union for autonomous operations. So that's a win-win. As a consequence, my plea is that the European Union should coordinate with NATO much more than it already does, and the capability uh, planners in both organizations should work together on a regular basis and identify the capabilities all the Europeans need for both NATO and the European Union. And the European Union should contribute with their means, the European Defence Fund, PESCO, to develop also capabilities that NATO can use. Well, there was some cooperation that Olaf Scholz called for in his speech, and that was that the next generation of fighter jets and tanks should be built in Europe jointly with European partners, especially with France. Is that realistic? I, know. I think it's a must, and it has been agreed, and I think not only France and Germany, but also the UK and others um, agree. 
no European country has the means and can afford developing such a demanding project uh, like the air fighter F-35 in the US or the future combat air system, which the Europeans plan to do together on their own. It requires at least two or three big European countries using all their technologies and financial resources to do that, number one. Number two, the Europeans need to develop capabilities that are high-end, and once they have set up them, they can be used in both NATO and the European Union. And I would like to stress again, in full coordination and transparency with the US, not separately or, as President Macron would put it, autonomously, but in coordination. And also the Europeans need to develop and support their own armament industry, the industrial bases, instead of only relying on the US products, which we do, however, but nevertheless, And although the Germans and the French have agreed to develop this full future combat air system, I am glad that Chancellor Scholz mentioned that for a replacement of the old Tornado aircraft, for its specific role is nuclear sharing. He is apparently in favor of the most modern aircraft, the US F-35. So I would be glad if we acquired this aircraft for German Air Force while we continue to work with French and others on European projects. Do you see those uh, European projects speeding up, though, because of the current threat, Rachel? I mean, there's been a lot of conversation for many, 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 many years and little advancement. I hope so. I mean, I wouldn't have expected this announcement of Scholz. I think it was Germany that in many ways was a kind of silent veto player for the kind of movement that other people were pushing for all these years. And now that Germany views it differently and Germany is ready to commit, I do for the first time. And I've been watching these debates in Germany and in Europe for you know 12 years. And three months ago, I would have said I cannot handle another conversation about this. But it feels different this time. And I hope I'm right. Well, my last question is sort of goes along these lines, and it's about whether a more defense-focused Germany with a robust military is sustainable. This is what Colonel Rüsner of the German Armed Forces Association had to say. I believe that this shock the war gave us will last, firstly because it won't be over so quickly, nor will Putin's behavior change so quickly either. The public is increasingly aware of these geopolitical changes. Nevertheless, political leadership and communication is needed to explain those realities again and again. Not only saying that internal and external security are essential, but explaining what that means. At the moment, public support for the armed forces is high, as is support for the special fund and filling any gaps in the military and the need for armament. But as always, it will take effective political communication to make this support last. After all, security precautions are not short-term. They have to work long-term. And we all have a responsibility to make those happen, including here at the German Armed Forces Association. Heine, I saw you give a thumbs up. Uh, do you agree with André Wiesner? I fully agree. And I am um, confident that uh, what he was saying will happen and will be implemented. And uh, we have now raised such high expectations within NATO and also the European Union. And so many allies that are um, with us in both organizations rely on us 
politically and also um, in terms of military capabilities that are required to support them in, in a crisis or in even a conflict or a war. So we have a political and moral obligation to provide uh, the necessary support to our allies as well because we benefit from their protection as well. The Poles and the Baltic states protect Germany vis-à-vis -vis Russia. So we have the obligation and the interest to support them when it comes to managing a crisis or stand an attack in a war. What about if Putin backs down from his territorial ambitions or there is an otherwise, let's say the war ends, Ukraine ends up in the orbit of Russia, but that's it. They don't go beyond that. Do you see Germany's military adverse approach to foreign policy returning, especially because the younger generation, which we have not spoken about as much, have been quite opposed to what uh, this Zeitenwende is showing? So I think there are a couple different scenarios. If Putin has a change of heart, withdraws from Ukraine, you know, completely, let's say, and decides, uh, just a joke, I didn't mean it. Um, and then you have, again, a kind of territorial buffer between NATO and Russia. That's one scenario. That's a scenario where I think the sort of threat perception could decrease pretty quickly um, in Germany, especially if you don't see the kind of political leadership and political communication that uh, Heine and the colonel were talking about. If Putin wins and takes over Ukraine, then you have someone who we know to be aggressive, who just launched a war against a, a free democratic country um, who's now on our border. So that's a different scenario where I think the threat perception would stay elevated, where you would have especially um, Germany's neighbors in the east feeling very, very threatened. But I think also um, Germany, also because in that scenario, there are a lot more Ukrainian refugees who need to find a home in Western Europe, which keeps the sort of suffering and the, the reality of what Putin did alive. So um, those are two different scenarios. I think the younger people, this is indeed important. I think it's exactly the younger people who are now seeing issues that they didn't think were issues being quite important. They rightfully are very, very worried about climate and would have a month ago said, why spend money on some jet what we really need to be doing is investing in stopping climate change. And they're not wrong, except for now. I think they're seeing pictures, you know, in their Twitter feeds and their Instagram every day who are um, that are bringing it home to them. Well, there are other challenges in the world, too, and they're not that far away. Um, and so I think that the ground is there for a real shift in the German public, not only the political class, especially if the political class stays united on this and um, does the work of bringing it across to people. I mean, Germans used to be you know, very horrified by this kind of U.S. language of our, our army is defending our freedom. You know, this to a German ear just sounded so pathetic and, um, and wrong. And I think that's going to ring differently now. Armies do defend people and freedom. Um, and they're seeing this now. Heiner, you wanted to add something? I very much agree with what Rachel just said. Um, to my ear, by the way, this sounds very good. We, our forces defend freedom and uh, liberty and peace. I think what we need to add is the requirement for the political leadership in Germany to stay committed. Um, in the past, uh, we have never we had never had a long, detailed discussion about German security interests and defense needs in the German parliament. The last one was sometime under Kohl. 
um, perhaps in the in the context of the Balkan war as well, but that was it. We need a chancellor and a government that visibly and demonstrably stays committed to enhancing deterrence and defense in support of our allies. And we need parliamentarians who explain this need to their voters at home. And this has suffered in the last 10 to 20 years significantly for a number of reasons. And I appeal to the German political leadership also to change their habit in this regard. That was Heiner Braus, Senior Associate Fellow with the German Council on Foreign Relations and GMF Editorial Director Rachel Tausenfreund. We also heard from Colonel André Wüstner of the German Armed Forces Association. Thanks for a fascinating conversation about this historical moment. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And thank you for listening to Common Ground Berlin. I'm your host, Soraya Sirhadi Nelson. Our senior producer is Dina El-Sayed. Our social media editor is Stefano Montali. And our intern is Abigail Meginson. This episode of Common Ground was made possible by a grant from the Checkpoint Charlie Foundation. Common Ground Berlin is made possible through a grant administered by the German Ministry for Economic Affairs and Energy. Our partners are the German Marshall Fund of the United States and Goethe Institute. All of our episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts, and you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at CG Berlin Podcast. If you're on Apple, we'd love for you to write a review on Common Ground Berlin. You can also subscribe to the podcast on Spotify. And be sure to check out our website, commongroundberlin.com.